Please open your Bibles to James chapter 4. Our passage for this week is James 4, 13 through 5, 12. Once again, that's James 4, 13 through James 5, 12. There have been a great number of con artists over the years. And of course, many of them have been rather successful. But few have been so outrageously bold, I would venture, as Cassie Chadwick. Born Elizabeth Bigley in Ontario, Canada on October 10, 1857, Cassie's first con came at the tender age of 13. With the help of a forged letter, she managed to convince a local bank that an unknown uncle had recently died in England and she was entitled to a rather small inheritance. The bank allowed Cassie to open up a checking account on the promise of this inheritance and she immediately started writing bad checks. Of course, it was only a matter of time before the checks began to bounce and a few months after her scheme began, Cassie was arrested. At the time, the courts deemed her too young and and too mentally unstable to be held accountable for her crimes, and so she was subsequently released to the care of her father. Now, you'd think that Cassie would have realized her good fortune in being let go and sworn off a life of crime right then and there, but alas, this would only become the first in a very long series of cons that she would pull off over the next several years. At the age of 22, she again tried the inheritance scheme this time rather successfully. Shortly after that, she moved to Cleveland, Ohio, where she began another scheme which included using her newlywed sister's furniture as collateral. She worked on and off as a fortune teller, assumed various aliases, married and divorced various men. But the greatest con of all came in 1902, after her marriage to uh, Dr. Leroy Chadwick. Dr. Chadwick was a widower and a member of Cleveland's social elite. He had met Cassie at a brothel that Cassie was running. And after Cassie managed to convince him that she didn't realize she was running a brothel, the two got married and moved to a house on a street in Cleveland known as Millionaire's Row. Now, Millionaire's Row was one of the premier addresses, not just in the United States at this time, but in the entire world. Its homes were even said to surpass that of New York's famed Fifth Avenue. And so you would think that for a con artist like Cassie, this would be a rather good score, right? She managed to scheme her way to the top. So what more is there to achieve, right? Why mess up a good thing? But again, Cassie's greed and her desire for the scam were insatiable. And so in 1902, she made a trip to New York and with the help of an acquaintance, visited the home of Andrew Carnegie. Andrew Carnegie, you may know, was one of the wealthiest men of all time. At its peak, his net worth came in at around $300 to $400 billion today. That's billion with a B. That would make him about three times richer than Bill Gates. Cassie had told this acquaintance, a lawyer by the name of Dr. James Dillon, that she needed someone to escort her to her father's house. The lawyer happily obliged, and without disclosing the identity of her father, Cassie proceeded to direct him to the address of Andrew Carnegie. 
Cassie ran inside and disappeared for a little while, and when she returned, she had a promissory note from Andrew Carnegie for $2 million. The lawyer was absolutely stunned. He, he finally asked Cassie just who her father was exactly, and Cassie confided in him. It was Andrew Carnegie. She was his illegitimate daughter, she explained, and Carnegie, racked with guilt, would often shower her with money to try to atone for his misdeeds. Of course, all this was very hush-hush, Cassie explained, so Dylan must swear not to tell anyone about her secret. Now, obviously, none of this was really true. Cassie had never even actually met Andrew Carnegie. She entered the mansion under the pretense of seeking a reference for a maid, just so she could have the appearance of knowing him to the lawyer. But she knew how to work a con, and by reeling in this lawyer, she could pull off the biggest con yet. She proceeded to visit various banks with assorted promissory notes signed by Andrew Carnegie requesting loans. The rumor about her supposed connections were now out and provided an air of authenticity to her claims. Cassie counted on the fact that the banks would be too intimidated and too greedy to question the validity of her connections with Andrew Carnegie, and she was absolutely right. They proceeded to give her loans at exorbitant interest rates, and Cassie would spend some of the money and then travel to another bank and secure another loan, which she would then use to pay off the first loan, and so on and so on, until she eventually scammed banks out of millions of dollars. Just how much Cassie eventually made off with, no one actually knows. The more conservative accounts say it probably came in at about $16 million in today's money. I've seen estimates as high as $85 million. She bought a chest with $100,000 worth of jewelry on one occasion. She purchased eight pianos as a Christmas gift on another. Uh, Her spending was so lavish that the newspapers even dubbed her the Queen of Ohio. But of course, unfortunately for Cassie, the con couldn't go on forever. In 1904, a Boston banker became suspicious after Cassie requested a loan. He started to check in on her story, and everything soon unraveled. By 1906, Cassie was convicted of conspiracy to bankrupt the Citizens National Bank of Oberlin in conspiracy against the the government and sentenced to 14 years in prison with a fine of $70,000. A little over a year later, she would die there in jail on her 50th birthday. Just how good Cassie was at pulling off the con is probably best illustrated by a conversation she had when she was in jail. In December 1904, the president of one of the banks Cassie tried to defraud visited her in jail. His name was Charles Beckwith. And a New York Times article from the time describes the encounter like this. It says... When the man whose bank and whose private fortune have been wrecked stood face to face with the woman who is charged with having been responsible for the wrecking of both, the two looked steadily at each other for a moment. Then they shook hands. You got us into an awful fix, said the aged banker. It looks as if it were time for you to tell all you know. The woman gave no sign of assent to to this opinion. You've ruined me, Beckwith continued. But I'm not so sure yet you are a fraud. I've stood by you to my last dollar, and I do think now is the time for you to make all known. This man apparently believed, even to the very end, that Cassie was who she claimed to be, and he wanted her to tell her story. Cassie Chadwick was that good at manipulating her victims. 
Now, we might hear a story like this and think to ourselves, you know, that's a pretty fantastic story. But thankfully, that sort of thing doesn't happen in the church today amongst Christians. But that's not true. This sort of manipulation, this kind of fraud even, does happen in the church. It's actually far more common than you might think. It maybe isn't carried to the same sort of extreme or with the same degree of intentionality like we see with Cassie Chadwick, but it does occur, and it's probably, again, far more frequent than you think. In fact, I would wager that you're guilty of a similar kind of con game all the time. And in this morning's passage, we're going to learn what it looks like, where the root of it lies, and what we need to do when we encounter it. The passage, once again, is James 4.13 to 5.12. And let's go ahead and read this passage together. James 4.13 to 5.12. James says this, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist which appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of patience and suffering, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. As we've studied this epistle together, I've occasionally noted that James is often accused of being more than a bit misorganized, uh, more than a bit disorganized in his thought. Uh, Perhaps disorganized isn't the right word, but, but, but disjointed at the very least. The general thought seems to be that James isn't addressing any specific issue in the church in particular when he writes this letter. He's just writing a general epistle to a wide collection of churches very generally. There's no one single theme that he wants to address, and so he'll more or less jump from one topic to another as he discusses the idea of Christian wisdom or the nature of a living faith. 
Uh, personally, I couldn't disagree more with these evaluations of the epistle. I tend to think this epistle is incredibly unified. You just have to pay attention to the details and spend at least a little bit of time thinking about the flow of James' argument. Take today's passage, for example. This is the perfect example of a passage that's typically read as a collection of disparate teachings, which James clearly intends to be read as a whole. The typical take on this passage is that it's made up of three or even four essentially separate sections, each of which are aimed at teaching three or four very different points. You can probably group them in your head just by looking at the page. The first passage is in James 4, 13-17. In that passage it said, James wants to address the arrogance of human presumption. That seems fairly obvious at first glance. James rebukes those who say that they're going to go to a certain place for a certain period of time and make a certain amount of money. He tells them they can't possibly know these things. He reminds them that they're just mere creatures and that these assertions seem to forget that fact. And so the lesson, so it goes, is that we have to avoid making these types of arrogant claims. Christian speech is marked by humility. The second passage is James 5, 1-6. And some commentators even go so far as to claim that James isn't just changing subjects here, but audience as well. They say that James issues this diatribe against the unbelieving rich who are abusing the brethren that James is writing to. And they say he issues this diatribe both to warn these Christians against coveting these unbelievers' riches and to encourage them with the prospect of future relief. John Calvin, for instance, that was his take on this passage. But whether the intended audience is made up of Christians or not, the point is still the same. There's a section of rich people who haven't cared for the poor, and the consequence is that they'll have to answer to God for their lack of compassion. So if that's you, then you need to repent of your materialism. The third passage is verses 7 to 11. In this passage, Christians are encouraged to endure their trials by looking to the coming of Christ. So, you know, maybe a little bit of a return back to James' message in chapter 1 about the importance of perseverance in trials. Uh, Maybe a little bit of a response to the diatribe against the rich in verses 1 to 6. All in all, though, the point is that these Christians need to endure their suffering through faith. And then, tacked on the end of this passage, or more often split off on its own, is verse 12 where James tells his readers to avoid making oaths. Why? Well, because God doesn't like oaths, apparently. James doesn't really give a reason, and he doesn't seem to be very strongly attached to anything that he said before. In fact, some commentators will even see that, say that, if anything, it should actually be attached to the next section in James. It doesn't have anything to do with what's going on starting in James 4.13. Again, that's the typical way to interpret this passage, to see it as a collection of essentially fragmented teachings. But I have to say, the more I look at this passage, the more I just can't see it. I think that approach is is seriously flawed for a number of reasons. The first of which is because of the apparent connection between James 4, 13-17 and the admonition about oaths in James 5, 12. Many readers have pointed out that James appears to derive a significant chunk of his teaching from Jesus. Some have even gone so far as to say that this epistle is little more than a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. And I find that intriguing. 
Because when James exhorts his readers against boasting about tomorrow, he ties it to the frailty of human life. He says, verses 13 to 16, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Again, he ties it back to the frailty of human life. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes the same connection in the context of oaths. He says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, it is the city of the great king. And then he says, And do not take an oath at all by your head, For you cannot make one hair white or black. That seems to go to this idea of God's sovereignty that we find in James 4. But let what you say be simply yes or no. That's James 5.12. And then, and listen real closely here, Jesus concludes by saying, anything more than this comes from evil. That's the end of James 4 again. James says that all such boasting about the future is evil. In other words, it would seem as if James is splitting this teaching about oaths, which originally came from Jesus over this passage that spans from the end of chapter 4 to the middle of chapter 5. You guys maybe start to see that a little bit here? Well, as I wrestled with the implications of that, it got me thinking, is it possible that this is all one passage? That this is all essentially one teaching? And the more I've looked into this, I'd say that the basic answer to that question is yes. You look at the beginning of verse 13, for instance, and James begins this exhortation by saying, Come now, you who say. Come now, you who say. You jump down to verse uh, chapter 5, verse 1, and again he says, Come now, you rich. So he's adopting a parallel form of address from one section to the next. Guys, that's basically what they tell you to do in preaching class to group your points together. They'll tell you to adopt a parallel form of expression and then mark it so people will know that you're talking about the same thing and follow your flow of thought from one point to another. You look in James 4, and James uses this word, behold, James 5, 4. He says, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. Only two other times in this epistle does James use this very noticeable injunction to behold, and that's chapter 5, verses 7 to 12. Verse 9, he says, Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Verse 11, he says, Behold, we consider those who bless, uh, who remain steadfast. So all three times he uses this word, it's in this section. This seems to mark a sustained level of intensity from at least James 5, 4 through James 5, 11. All in all, I think that James is dropping a number of linguistic hints, words from this passage to show us that this is all one section. In fact, I think it's even bigger than that. If you're paying attention, I think this passage really starts back in the verses we looked at last week. When James exhorts his readers in verses 11 to 12, he says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? 
Now, I want you to note the language there. You're noticing what James is saying there. He's addressing the one who speaks evil against or judges his brother. And he says that they shouldn't do this, since the one who does this speaks evil against the law and judges the law. He then reminds them there's only one lawgiver and judge, and it's not them. Well, look at James 5.9 once again. James says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Do you guys see the connection there? He warns them not to judge in James 4, 11 to 12, and then he follows this up with this command not to grumble against one another in James 5, 9. That's just like how he follows up the warning about presumptuous speech in James 4, 14 to 17 with the command against oaths in James 5, 12. In fact, I want you to notice this. In James 5, 9, James explains why they shouldn't grumble against one another. He says that they shouldn't do it, quote, so that you may not be judged. In James 5.12, he does the same thing with oaths, saying that you may not fall under condemnation. Are you guys starting to see this with me here? This entire section is about speech. James is addressing two different types of unrighteous speech. And again, this isn't an isolated concern. James has been concerned with this issue since the very beginning of this book. Back in chapter 1, verse 19, he urged his readers, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And in verse 26, he continued, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. In chapter 2, James expresses concern over those who merely say they love God without actually doing what he commands. In chapter 3, he devotes an entire section of this epistle to the danger of an undisciplined tongue. All in all, the importance of speech has been at the very heart of this book. And for good reason. We know from James 4.1 that there are all kinds of quarrels and conflicts being stirred up in the church over their idolatrous desires. These idolatrous desires, I've explained, have provoked the jealousy of God and they're contributing to the trials the church is experiencing. God is disciplining His bride for the root of these conflicts. So speech and, and what it reveals about the human heart and how it's contributing to their trials, this has been at the very center of James' concern since the very beginning of this book. And that's what he's concerned about again here. He's discussing the root and consequence of their speech. And he's discussing it as a means of urging them to resolve these conflicts with one another so that they might escape the discipline of the Lord. So what is the root of these conflicts and how is it contributing to their suffering? Once again, I think James has been incredibly consistent in communicating the answer to that question throughout this book. As I said a moment ago, James explains in chapter 4 that the reason for their suffering comes back to their idolatry. And so the solution, therefore, is to repent. As he explains in chapter 4, verse 6, he says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He says again, chapter 4, verse 10, Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Incidentally, that's the same issue that James brought up back in chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, when he closed his introduction to this epistle by saying, verse 9, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. And that word lowly, by the way, it can also mean poor. So let the poor or lowly brother boast in his exaltation. And conversely, verses 10 to 11, And the rich in his humiliation. And then look at what he says here, Because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. 
For the sun rises with its scorching heat and the withers of grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. I mean, is this at all starting to sound familiar? I mean, don't you see the connection there with what we're encountering here in James 4 and 5 today? There, James compares the rich to a flower that wilts in the heat of the noonday sun. And here he compares the businessman to mist or smoke that blows away and disappears with a sudden puff of air. Hopefully you can start to see the big idea of what's going on here. The the big idea in this book is that there are conflicts taking place in the church between the rich and the poor. And the root of these conflicts is money. Rich and poor are contending with one another over the desire for financial security. And the reason this desire is leading to such contention in the church, on both accounts, by the way, on both accounts, the reason why this desire is leading to such contention in the church is pride. It's pride. Both sides are allowing their arrogance, their pride, to contribute to these conflicts. How this works with the poor, we saw last week. I explained back in chapter 1 that the ones who probably need to be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger are actually probably the rich. Last week in chapter 4, verses 11 to 12, we saw why. James tells us that there are brethren in the church who are slandering their brothers. They're speaking evil against them and even condemning them as hypocrites. Well, guess who that would be? More than likely, it's the poor that are doing that. As James has already told us, religion that's pure and undefiled is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. As he's told us in chapter 2, true faith isn't manifested just by proclamations of one's religious devotion, but with demonstration of one's care for the brethren. We know from the beginning of chapter 2 that there are disputes arising between the rich and the poor, and church leaders are apparently showing favoritism in these disputes to the rich. So more than likely, it's the poor who are doing the condemning. They're being wronged by the rich and they're asking the church to intervene, but they don't feel like they're being heard. So they're seeing the actions of the rich and perhaps even the actions of their leaders who are all sinning and depriving them of justice. And they're grumbling against them, saying, you know, this isn't how Christians are supposed to act. What a bunch of hypocrites. That's why the rich must strive to bridle their tongue and receive the correction of their brethren is because although the poor are accurate in what they're saying, at the same time, the poor are expressing their frustrations maliciously. There's resentment in their accusations. This resentment, James points out, stems from pride. They're condemning their brothers because they've forgotten their place and they've forgotten what God has said about their uh, their richer brethren. Yes, what the rich are doing here is wrong, and yet the gospel still states that God accepts us even in spite of our sin. So for them to go around and condemn their brothers while God is saying He accepts them, that isn't to act in submission to the law, but to stand in judgment over it. It's even to place oneself on a level with God, as if they themselves have the authority to determine what standards ought to be applied for acceptance into the kingdom of heaven. Listen, it doesn't matter what sins the rich have committed against them. God isn't going to let that kind of arrogance fly. He's going to discipline these Christians for this sin. He's going to correct them for contending with Him. So if these poor brothers want to know why they're suffering, there's their answer. 
They're not only loving money more than they love God, but they're actually contending with God in their arrogant judgments of their brethren. And this means if they want to see these trials subside, then they must repent, they must put away their judgmental speech. Well, if that's the case, then what are the rich doing? What are they doing? How are they guilty of arrogance? And and how is their arrogance aggravating these conflicts? Again, it's the the judgmental attitude of the poor that's aggravating the rich to the degree that James has to tell them, hold your tongue. So what about the rich? How are they aggravating the poor with their pride? I think we find the answer in verse 17. I think verse 17 is the key verse in this entire passage. In fact, I don't think I really understood what James was doing in today's passage until I got the meaning of verse 17. The arrogance of the rich, of course, comes out in verses 13 to 16. They're saying to themselves, today and tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. And when they say this, they're assuming that they're in control of the future when quite obviously they're not, right? I mean, we've all been the victim of unexpected disasters at one time or another, be it you know, financial or, or physical. I can remember when Emily and I were about to go to seminary, we had two cars. We had a gold Oldsmobile and a maroon Ford Escort. And we didn't have enough money to move out to California, so our plan was to sell the Oldsmobile and keep the Escort, which was newer and honestly kind of cooler and presumably in better position. I know it's weird to say an Escort was cool, but it was cooler than the Oldsmobile. Okay, So we took the Oldsmobile to the mechanic to get it fixed up to sell, and we weren't two blocks away when the Escort started billowing, and I mean billowing white smoke. Needless to say, God had different plans for us. It's as the scripture says in Proverbs 19.21, Many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Quite simply, we don't control the future. That was Jesus' point in Matthew 5 when he spoke of a man being unable to turn his hair white or black. And it's what James means when he says that we don't know what tomorrow will bring and that we're only a mist that appears for a time and vanishes. We're not in control of the future. And yet the one who speaks this way is acting like they are. As James points out in verse 16, that's arrogance. And so obviously God is going to correct that. He's not going to work with that. And keep that in mind, by the way, the next time you start boldly asserting what you're going to go and do at some point in the future. If you're a believer and you go talking that way, you're only inviting God to thwart your plans. You're asking Him to remind you that you're not in control. It's what He does for you in love. He's jealous for you, and so He will teach you to depend on Him. Anyways, that's what's happening in verses 13 to 16. James is showing us how the speech of the rich in this instance reveals their arrogance. Now the question is, how is that arrogance contributing to the conflict in the church? Again, I think we find the answer in verse 17. If you treat verses 13 to 17 as a separate unit, then the meaning of verse 17 is kind of cryptic. James talks about boasting. And then he concludes, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. The first word in that statement is the Greek particle, un, and it means therefore. As in, because these things are so, 
therefore. It's a particle that implies inference, meaning whatever is happening in verses 13 to 16 are supposed to naturally conclude with this statement in verse 17. I don't know about you, but I've always been caught kind of off guard by that. I never saw anything up in verses 13 to 16 that would naturally lead to this conclusion, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. I know some people will try to say, well, if you know not to boast and then you still do it, then it's sin, but that conclusion doesn't really naturally flow out of this statement about boasting. Like, I, I wouldn't hear James teaching about boasting and then say to myself, oh, so I guess that means whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. That's just not a logical inference from the passage. So how does James say, therefore? What does he mean by therefore? I think the answer is kind of obvious, actually, once you see this passage as a single unit. The answer comes down in verse 12 when James concludes, But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. Remember, Jesus said it was this oath-taking specifically that comes from evil, not mere boasts about the future. And what he meant is that when we swear an oath, the reason we do it is to manipulate other people to serve our purposes. Let me give you an example. Sometimes my children will come to me and they'll say, Hey, Daddy, will you play with me? I'll be working in my office or something like that. I work at home. I'll be working in my office. I'll come out of my office and say, Hey, Dad, right now it's chess. They all want to play chess. Dad, will you play chess with me? And you know what I'm tempted to say to them? I want to say to them in that moment, I'm sorry, Daddy's busy right now. But listen, we'll play tonight. I promise. And the only problem is that I can't actually control what happens between now and tonight, can I? And I can't tell you guys the number of times I've said something like that to my kids and then lo and behold, something comes up and I can't play with them. So why do I still say that when I say that? Why would I still make that promise? Is it for their benefit? No, it's because I don't want to disappoint them. I want them to treat me in that moment like a daddy who plays with them, even though I haven't. In short, what I'm trying to do is buy their love on credit. And friends, when we do things like that, we're no different than Cassie Chadwick. We're going around buying credit on promissory notes our Father has neither signed nor guaranteed. And eventually those checks are going to start to bounce and people are going to get hurt. And that's what Jesus means when He says, you simply say yes or no and that anything more than this comes from evil. And it's what James means up in verses 13 to 16 when he says that this arrogant boasting about the future is also from evil. The only reason why we'll promise things that we don't have the power to deliver is in order to serve ourselves. Well, if that's the case, then what are the rich promising here that they're not delivering on? And again, how does this connect with the conflicts that are occurring in the church? Again, I think we see the answer once we treat this passage as a unit. Chapter 5, verse 4, James tells the rich, 
Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Can you start to see what's happening here, (laughs) guys? These poor have been hired to do work, and the rich aren't paying them. They're trying to skirt their responsibility. How? I think we see the answer, verses 13 to 16, by saying, gee, guys, sorry, look, I hate to say this. I know I said I'd pay you, but I'm a little short on cash right now. Don't worry, though, I've got this plan. See, my friend and I, we're going to take the grain you harvested for me, and we're going to go to this city for a few weeks, and then we're going to sell it, and then after I get paid from that, I'll get you your money. You've had someone do something like that to you before, haven't you? You've had someone swear to you, look, I don't have the money right now, but I promise you I'm good for it. And guys, are they ever good for it? Very rarely, if ever, right? That's what's happening here. These business owners are saying, I'll pay you after I sell for a profit. And there are at least two problems with that sort of arrangement. Number one, it most likely isn't what was originally agreed upon. In all likelihood, these workers agreed to a day's wages and they expected to get paid a day's wages regardless of whether or not the owner made a profit. And that's because, number two, the owner isn't in control of the future, is he? So what happens if the owner doesn't turn a profit, right? What happens if he can't find a buyer? Or what happens if the ship carrying his grain sinks? Can you see what the owner's doing here? He's manipulating the arrangement to his advantage. If he pays the workers and then doesn't sell for a profit, then he's out what he spent on the crop plus what he paid for his workers. But if he only pays his workers out of his profits, then he forces them to absorb the shock of his bad selling season. He can come back and say to them, sorry guys, I can't pay you because I didn't make anything. And that minimizes his losses. Guys, this is what James means when he says in verse 17... So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. The right thing to do in this case is to pay their workers what they're owed. That's what they agreed to. And it's what they need to follow through on. To promise payment they already owe based on events that they can't control is to, verse 16, boast in their arrogance. In other words, it's not only arrogant to presume on events outside of your control, but to then go and make promises based on those events is to boast or take confidence in that arrogance. Friends, that's not only incredibly foolish, but it comes from evil. These rich Christians are trying to manipulate the situation to their own advantage to the detriment of their poor brothers. That's not only dishonest, it's flat out unloving. It's the exact opposite of mercy. To put, the sh- to, to put the financial risk, to shift that onto the poor brother, and most especially when there's nothing that the poor brother can do about it, that's the exact opposite of mercy. And it contradicts the gospel. Right? Like Jesus told us to surrender our rights for the sake of others. He said that if anyone slaps us on the right cheek, we give to him the other also. He said if anyone would take your tunic, give him your cloak as well. What the rich are doing here is the exact opposite of that. 
They're seeing their poor brother shivering in their cloak, and they're saying, hey, look, I'm going to give you your tunic eventually. I just got to make, my, make sure that my bases are covered first. And they're saying this while clothed in beautiful robes and fine jewelry. Now, friends, can you see how this kind of speech would contribute to conflicts in the church? Can you understand why the poor brothers would be grumbling against their brethren? Can you see why they're publicly attacking their character and even questioning their salvation? It's because there's nothing Christian about this. I mean, how would you feel if you're trying to do everything you can to make ends meet, just to put food on the table for your family, and so you go do some work for a brother, and then when you stop him after church to ask when you're getting paid, he says to you, as he's getting into his new Corvette, we'll have to see. Unfortunately, things are a little tight right now. But let's see how my stocks do in the third quarter, and we can talk then. I'd imagine you might be a little more than angry in that instance. And that's what's happening here. These poor brothers are angry. They're hot. And guess what, guys? So is God. God is incredibly angry at what's going on here. And that's what we're going to see in greater detail next week. James is going to let these rich Christians know that God is absolutely furious with them for their behavior. And again, just how furious, we'll explore in greater detail next week. In the meantime, I would point out that once we see this passage is really just a single extended discourse about the sin of manipulative speech, then I think we can break it down into essentially three points. There is the deception, the danger, and the direction for manipulative speech. Again, that's the deception, the danger, and the direction for manipulative speech. We've already discussed the first of these points this morning, and that's the deception of manipulative speech. The deception is that a manipulative speech attempts to cover hidden motives. Once again, manipulative speech attempts to cover hidden motives. It doesn't matter how sincere these rich brothers are in intending to make their uh, payment to these brethren once it's convenient. And I do believe many of them probably are sincere. All the same, it doesn't matter how sincere they are their willingness to boast in their arrogance, their willingness to place their confidence in events they can't control demonstrates that they're guilty of hidden motives. Most specifically, it reveals that they're looking out for themselves. It doesn't matter how sincere they are in intending to pay their brothers, they're still leveraging the contingency of God's plans against those brothers. Again, Brothers and sisters, that's counter to the gospel. Christian love reflects the love of Christ. That's to say, it's a sacrificial love. It's, the, it's a kind of love that makes the Christian absorb a bullet for a brother. These rich are trying to use their brothers as a human shield. They're allowing them to absorb the blows of their trials for them so that they can live in luxury. Again, that's the exact opposite of the gospel. And with that in mind, there are just two questions that I'd like you to reflect on here this morning. I don't want to jump into the danger and the direction 
of manipulative speech just yet. There's too much to discuss there to get into right now. I think we have enough to chew on as is, so to prepare for next week, I want you to reflect on these two questions. The first question is this. When are you guilty of using manipulative speech? When are you guilty of using manipulative speech? We've seen throughout this epistle that James is so incredibly good at making the connection between our actions and our heart. He shows us how we can take the fruit and trace it back down to the root. Well, this is what you have to keep in mind with today's passage. Your manipulative speech is attempting to cover for hidden motives. Again, your manipulative speech is attempting to cover for hidden motives. If that's the case, then when are you guilty of using manipulative speech? Because when you do that, more than likely, brothers and sisters, you're not acting in Christian love. You're trying to alter the circumstances for your benefit. So when do you do it? Think hard about that for a minute. You know, I know today we, we're, we've mainly focused on the use of promises or oaths, and that's definitely one way that we can try to manipulate others with our words by making promises that we don't have the power to guarantee. But that's not the only way that we can do this. What we're talking about here, when we talk about manipulative speech and these oaths, it's really just a type of lie. Intended or not, it's deceitful to make a promise that's contingent on circumstances outside your control because you don't have that sort of power. You don't have the power to deliver on what you're you're promising. So maybe ask yourself, when else might I deceive with my speech? I mean, if you lie to someone, that's obviously manipulative speech. But there are other ways we can deceive too. Uh, For instance, sometimes we can feign specific emotions to elicit a response. You know, like we'll feel sorry for ourselves to evoke pity, or we'll act hurt to evoke guilt. That's all manipulative speech that's rooted in hidden motives. So, first question, how is your speech manipulative? And then the second question I want you to ask yourself is, what does this speech reveal about your motives? What does it reveal about your motives? It's just like we've seen in James. It's the love of money that's producing this type of speech in the church. That's the source of all their quarrels and conflicts. In this case, the rich desire ease. They want luxury comfort so badly that they'll defraud their brother to get it. So what does your manipulative speech reveal about your idolatrous desires? What do you think that you have to lie to get? Let me ask that one more time. What do you think you have to lie or deceive to get? I want you to ponder these two questions. And then next week, let's see what James has to say about the answer to those questions as we look into the danger and direction for manipulative speech next week. Let's pray.